Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what behind-the-scenes figure from film history isn't a household name, but you feel like should be? Okay, so with this one, um, I, I, I had a tie here, so I'm going to mention them both. One of them's been, people have been trying to get her name a little more recognition in recent years, mainly because she was tied to one of the most iconic directors of all time. The other one also tied to one of the most iconic directors of all time, but still gets lost in the fray in terms of this guy's work. And I think her work with him uh, was just, was vital in making him as much of a household well a much of a household name in horror households i should say both of these guys even though the first one did good work once they stopped working together and the other guy not not as much let's just put it that way my two picks are deborah hill and daria nicolodi deborah hill was vital to the early success of john carpenter um he was always very open about how she helped uh, with the female perspective on Halloween, and you know, it, without Halloween, who knows where Carpenter would have went? Who knows where horror would have went? Uh, they worked together a few more movies after that, but when she left, he still made uh, some great movies like In the Mouth of Madness, Big Trouble in Little China, They Live, stuff like that. Dario Nicolodi met met, met up with uh, Argento early in his career. I believe she uh, got with him on The Cat of Nine Tales as an actress, I believe, and they hit it off. They became romantically involved but then she became a writer with him and without her influence we don't get suspiria uh again who knows where horror goes without suspiria the way that movie just trickled through the minds of horror filmmakers just filmmakers in general it's my opinion the best looking movie of all time uh who knows if he would have made the shift to a more supernatural bent he was strictly a giallo guy at the time and after that he's leaned more into the supernatural and once they stopped working together after that after a phenomena i believe uh his career was never the same he did some decent movies in the 90s uh but he's taken a real nosedive and i think those two women they don't get the recognition they deserve i know jamie lee curtis and you know carpenter himself uh you know on the marketing tours for these last two halloweens have really been like banging the deborah hill drum but i think more people need to really put some respect on the names of Deborah Hill and uh, Daria Nicolodi, two women that really, really shaped genre film and in just a broader terms, just film in general. Without those two, who knows what movies would look like today. When it comes to uh, names that aren't household names and should be, um, much like Tom uh, suggested, I, I'm thinking of someone who is sort of attached to and overshadowed by a household name, arguably the biggest household name in film history i'm gonna say a couple titles for people and uh and and see what they think you know when i say psycho you think hitchcock 
When I say Jaws, you think Spielberg. When I say Pulp Fiction, you think Tarantino. You think of the directors. But I'm going to say a couple titles here. 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, The Jungle Book. You're thinking Walt Disney, who was the producer, who was the overall name attached to all of these projects. But the director of those films was also a, a directing animator and animator on so many of the classic Disney films from uh, the band concert, the Mickey Mouse short to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, uh, where they were the anim- one of the animators. Pinocchio as the animation director, and then taking on a, a career as a director. The man's name is Wolfgang Reitherman. If you have any affinity for any of the, the Disney animated films of the 60s, and their style and their feel, where you see that distinction, where it goes from uh, the the very sharp lines and and very uh, refined style of Sleeping Beauty. Now you get Hundred One Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, Jungle Book for the uh, Aristocats, Robin Hood, where there's that very sketchy kind of animation style. That's Wolfgang Reitherman, um, a hugely important figure in the the evolution of the animated film and in Disney history, and one of the only directors when it comes to Disney animated films or animated films in general, one of the only directors where you actually see a directorial style influence that work, not just art style, but just a, a sense of pacing, a sense of storytelling. But nobody knows Wolfgang Reitherman's name, despite directing so many of the films that influenced their childhood, because it's just trapped under that banner of, well, these were all Walt Disney films, and then after he dies, these are just nebulous Disney films. But more people should know Wolfgang Reitherman because of that remarkable body of work. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're honored to host Dr. Robert J. Snyder, who wrote the National Film Registry's induction essay for 1938's The River. Our guest today is the Professor of Communications at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. Dr. Robert J. Snyder joins us today to talk about the river. Dr. Snyder, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You, you know, just before we get too deep, so when I first got the invite several weeks ago, I figured, yeah, I better check this out. And I can't remember which podcast I played, uh, but one of the things I learned was some of you guys can cuss pretty good. <laughs> oh, that's me. That's me. I'm gonna fit right in. That's my. It's that's my me. mom's frequent note of the show too. So you're not alone. <laughs> it's my mom's frequent note of my life. So. <laughs> so that's that's very uh, that's very cool that, that you listen to the show. Uh, I I hate to hype you up too much just as we start, but you were one of our uh, you know uh, pie in the sky hopes to get on the on the program, and the fact that we were able to do that is very cool. The fact that you took time to speak to us is is very exciting for us. It's summer. I'm on break. <laughs> it's uh, that's because you know here at Your Sound, you know we pride ourselves we are a national film registry podcast, which means we get to talk about films that don't get on some of these other lists. And uh, in addition to you being a professor of communications, uh, you know one of the main resources we refer to when we're researching for this show is that uh, the National Film Registry, in addition to their little blurbs that they put for every film, 
sometimes invites people to write expanded essays on some of the selected films. Uh, it's very cool for us as people who refer to these all the time in our National Film Registry nerds that that you wrote the expanded essay for Pare Lorenz's The River. Well, here, here's an exclusive. I'll give you the backstory on how I wound up uh, writing that. Uh, a few years ago, I uh, got an email from somebody who's at the Library of Congress. <laughs> hey, you know, we run the film registry and stuff, and we're looking to do uh, essays on each of the films. And based on your book, we'd like to invite you to write up on uh, Paralorance. And I, nice little reply, well, thanks for reaching out. Uh, just so happens it was my dad who wrote the book on Pere Lorenz. So the middle initial is actually different. But hey, um, I've taught a course in documentary film at that point for over 25 years. Uh, my dad's not around, but I'm I'm pretty sure I could cover for my dad. So that was that was just, no, I'm not my dad. I'm sorry. But I think <laughs> I can help you out. And you did. And that is that is just so that is so cool. Uh, you know, we were we were. Uh... Well, I'll say this. Tom is too cool to get excited about this stuff, but Kyle and I were little uh, Library of Congress fanboys when you uh, when you said you'd come on. So that's uh, it's very cool. And yes, you mentioned uh, your father, uh, Robert L. Snyder, wrote uh, Pari Lorenz and the documentary film, which is a book I managed to uh, track down. Hey, uh, man, that's original cover. Yep, yep. That's I did some. Cover, uh, yeah. That was some yep. vintage bookstore hunting uh, that that took because uh, I go way too hard on research uh, for this show. I bring to research what Tom brings to cursing on this program. That's kind of how we balance it out. Yes, yes. <laughs> he, 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 is, he is the head, and I am the rancid heart that, that pumps the blood throughout this show. It's, it's fine. I get it. I know what I look like. It's fine. <laughs> but I'm very, you know, I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, I tried to do, I'll get this out of the way up top. I tried to do a little extra research because apparently there is... Uh, a Pari Lorenz uh, film center that is allegedly located uh, in Hyde Park uh, in New York. Right, right, right. It's with uh, the the FDR, the Franklin Roosevelt Library. There's a center there. And uh, my dad uh, started the radio TV film program at UW Oshkosh. And there's there's an archive at Oshkosh as well. See now the thing that's the the thing that separates that is I'm certain, uh, Doctor Snyder, that if you wanted to visit that archive in Oshkosh, you could. Whereas if somebody, let's say me, drove two and a half hours to Hyde Park, got to the library and asked the man at the desk, "Where is the Pari Lorenz Center?" and the man at the desk says, "That's not really a thing," and you go, "I heard it was here," and he goes, "I don't know. They're mostly based in Manhattan, but you could go look at the FDR Museum if you want." Okay. Yeah. So I thought I'd be coming in with a lot more first-hand resources than I have. My apologies to the listener. There is a bunch of stuff with the Lorenz Center on uh, on on the in- interweb. Yes, they have a great collection of actual like first-hand audio of him in yeah. uh, being interviewed, which is uh... yeah. Um, and uh, just this year, I was digging out my office and. My my dad in it was in the eighties. He received a, a grant, a research grant from his from UW Oshkosh, and actually spent like two weeks with uh, Mr. Lorenz at his home uh, because he dad had written everything about his time with the government, 
uh, Dad did extensive interviewing with Mr. Lorenz on uh, the post, the post-government activities of his. And I came across uh, my dad's analog guy and, and all those interviews he did with Pere Lorenz were on real to real audio tape. Oh, jeez. Yeah, pre-audio cassette for all you youngsters out there that remember audio cassettes. Not. What's an audio cassette? <laughs> so before we had CDs, yeah, what's a CD? What's a CD? You mean, I'm yeah. sorry, you mean, you mean, you mean like these guys? Yeah, oh, I still got yeah, a stack right, of them. Right? Looks like a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> um, I, I, I took and digitized all those audio reels and sent uh, uh, copies of those interviews to the Lorenz Center at uh, the FDR Library. Oh, so those are those are from you, those those audio clips. Well, it depends. There's all kinds of different clips I know through the center. I would have yeah. to uh, jump in and see, you know, which which ones are there. But well, but much of uh, the interviews about anything he did, anything Lorenz did post government, uh, were those uh, uh, subjects of the interviews that my dad did because he had already he had already talked extensively and corresponded extensively with Lorenz on his on his documentary work with the government. So he wanted to document, my dad wanted to document um, Lorenz's post-government work, which which is quite often overlooked. So we're going to talk uh, more about Lorenz and particularly about this film, The River. But before we get into our thoughts on the film and our relationship with the film, uh, let's talk about what the National Film Registry had to say. Here's what the Library of Congress had to say about the river. As he did with The Plow That Broke the Plains, Pari Lorenz infuses this short documentary about the Mississippi River with artistic and persuasive scenes intended to further the Roosevelt administration's policies. The film portrayed the devastation caused by irresponsible farming and timber practices that caused massive erosion and pushed nearby residents to the brink of poverty. In the end, Lorenz presents the Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA, as savior with its use of dams to prevent flooding and its advocacy for less damaging farming techniques. Audiences responded mostly favorably, though a number of viewers as well as most critics found its propagandistic approach often overshadowed its artistry. Now that is what the National Film Registry had to say, and obviously, uh, Dr. Snyder, you added a a lot of context to that in your uh, expanded essay, which uh, folks can read. It'll be linked in in the show notes. But that's what the National Film Registry had to say. Now let's talk a bit more about uh, your relationship, and I guess by extension, probably your father's relationship with uh, Pari Lorenz. He's not the most written about filmmaker, and and I would imagine you know a lot of our listeners, um, based on our, our surveys and all, are high school, early college kind of aspiring film fans. So a lot of these names that we talked about in our first season and this season, you know, uh, Ernst Lubitsch and and Alfred Hitchcock and all of that are, are names that are known. Uh, Lorenz, um, less so, but obviously in the very second year of the registry's existence, they, they selected the river. So how did you come to discover Lorenz? How did your what was your relationship and your father's relationship to Lorenz that made him such an interesting figure to you guys? Well, long time ago uh 1950s so my dad was in graduate school university of iowa was uh, going after his phd and of course to get your phd you have to do a dissertation and my dad had taken a course in film where one of the films screened was lorenz's river you know this is like a, a theory class film theory um 
that film spoke to him and and it 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 my dad thought hey the there really isn't much on, and this is late fifties, there really isn't much out there on this filmmaker other than his films. I'm going to look into doing my PhD dissertation on this. And, and it, it's my understanding that it actually took a few years of persuasion for my dad to convince Pere Lorenz uh, to cooperate. Who's, who's this guy out in Iowa? <laughs> And, and and it took some, it took a few years of uh, persuasion. I remember my dad talking about that. But once he convinced uh, Lorenz, hey, let's let's uh, you know when you watch the river and the plow the, broke the plains, it, it, it's clear that Lorenz is a skillful storyteller. And, and I think I'm gonna guess. I, I didn't get to ask him. I'm gonna guess my dad convinced uh, Lorenz. We need to tell your story. We need to tell your story and how did these films uh, come into being? And and Lorenz's backstory is pretty interesting because prior to his first film, The Plow That Broke the Plains, he, he has zero, zero background in film production. He went to college in, uh, he was uh, born and raised in West Virginia, of all places, not to knock West Virginia. Uh, but he was born and raised in West Virginia, went to college in West Virginia, where he studied journalism, right? And back in the day, that's print, that's newspapers. And and that was that was his first goal. Uh, I want to be a writer, and I think, you know, journalism might get me there. And then uh, he landed a job as a, a film critic, writing movie reviews. And so he had zero background. And, and eventually... Uh, his name came to the attention of the Department of Agriculture, which was interested in, uh, let's, is, is there any way we can inform the, this is during the Great Depression now, is there any way we can inform the public, right, about some of the issues facing our country and what uh, the Agriculture Department's doing here? And he actually wound up with the Re Resettlement Administration, which was a, a smaller part of the Department of Agriculture, um, was somewhat known as a film critic and offered offered to, hey, sure, you guys interested in making a movie? I'll, I'll give it a shot. And then, of course, uh, the, the person, in some ways, this is genius, uh, or, or a perfect illustration of how the federal government works. So the guy the federal government hires to make its first documentary film has zero production experience, has no idea how to make a film. Now, as a film critic, he understands and can explain this is a good movie because this, that, and the other thing, right? All the things that he can explain that, he can describe it, but he never did it. And he ran into all kinds of uh, issues with his, with his first film, including not understanding how the federal government works. You want to get reimbursed for your expenses? You have to have receipts. Go figure. That's, I spent $10 at a restaurant today. You got a receipt? No. Uh, sorry about that. And so he had to learn all these, his first experience in, in some ways almost was his last. He was, first of all, frustrated with dealing with the federal bureaucracy. Yeah, the, the classic story. So what do you need for a budget? He literally pulled a number out of his head. Yeah, 6,000 should cover it. No, he went over 20,000 on the budget. And because he, 
Well, you overspent your budget. He wound up paying for a lot of his first film, The Plow That Broke the Plains. He wound up paying for a lot of that out of his own pocket because he just didn't understand how the federal government works. But but he was also frustrated, too, uh, just as significantly, um, working with a film crew. Yeah, let's just drive around the great, yeah, there's dust bowls and stuff. Let's maybe just go out to Kansas and drive around and maybe we'll we'll come to a dust storm or, or something. Well, it doesn't work that way. He didn't have a script. He didn't have a production plan. I, I've taught media production for years. And, and one of the things I try to get uh, media production students to understand is, hey, you know what the most important part of a production is? We call it pre-production. It's have a plan. Now, your plan can change, sure. But you need a plan, like a shooting schedule and resources and what exactly are you going to say and how are you going to say it and schedules. And that. yeah, he didn't. Lawrence didn't understand any of that. And he was so frustrated. He was talking with his supervisor at the federal government. Hey, man, this ain't working. I'm done. And he has, Lawrence has told this story in more than one setting. He was literally leaving his supervisor's office in the Department of Agriculture. And there in this office was a map of the Mississippi. And Lawrence offhandedly said something to the effect that, you know, right there, the Mississippi River, that's like the biggest story in America. Oh, hey, Pear, come on back. Let's talk about this. And so it's it's a real interest. I think his backstory, the fact that here's somebody with zero film production experience. He understands movies, yes, as a critic. What makes a good movie? He had zero experience. And yet he's he's gone on to make not one, but two films, The Plow That Broke the Plains and The River, that are that are on the film register it's just in many ways it's simply an astonishing story and i think that one thing that i find so impressive about his background you know we use the word gall a lot and you know and and sometimes it's it's hyperbolic but um now uh, he strikes me as somebody who was just um you know you tell those stories about him when he was working for the federal government and kind of just doing his own thing and i don't want to even before that i mean you know you mentioned he was a film critic he was a film critic, I think, at, he had worked for Vanity Fair. He worked for a magazine called Judge. And then, uh, I'm going to let the audience do some of their own research. Uh, he worked for a big media company that I won't name so I don't get fired. Um, he worked for someone. And it was one of the most powerful media moguls in America. And when Lorenz took on this job as film critic, he decided the first thing he would do working for one of the most powerful men in media is say, I want to be clear, I'm not going to review any films that star your famous mistress uh, unless I can be fair about them. So, I, you know, I'm going to be clear that there's a conflict of interests here. So he got, I believe, fired the first of two times. And then <laughs> when he goes back to her, like the, the ideas that he had that were so ambitious, I mean, he talked about, I was listening to him talk about um, how at the time, one of his interests in visual media was that at the time uh, of of prohibition was still going on at this time, some other uh, photojournalists had just published a book of all these gruesome photographs of mobsters and bootleggers uh, at their murder scenes. Like police photographs are just like these bloody bodies and sold them on newsstands, you know, for the sensationalism of it. And his whole thing was, well, I want to, I want to document this stuff with in, with more integrity. I want to, I want to try and teach people with this. So he pitched that, and that didn't go over. And then I believe when he is back at major media company, 
uh, run by uh, Charles Foster Kane. He is very inspired by FDR, and I believe he wanted to go on the road with him or follow him. And originally, I think, just produce a, a photo book. I think that was where his interest began. But just everything done out of like, well, I just want to do it, and I'm going to do it. You know? Yeah he he did a, he did a book called The Roosevelt Year 1933, and that that is what began to brought, uh, bring him to the uh, to the attention of the. Uh, the federal government, I, you know, the word we'd use today is chutzpah. Yeah. You know, yep. In a lot of ways, the guys showed no fear. Do a documentary. Yeah, sure. Oh, by the way, what do you know about me? No, nobody bothered to ask him that. And, oh, hey, you want to do a documentary about the Mississippi River? Yeah, sure. I'll just hop on a, a boat and just, you know, float, float down, down the river, river and and figure figure it out from there. And then uh, get into the river and going, uh, whoops. Uh, I guess I'll do something else about this Mississippi River thing. Uh, I don't know. Let's. Uh, oh, hey, there's a, there's a flood. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go check out this flood. That should be easy enough to film in 1936 with uh, you know, all the high def mobile cameras we got back then. His GoPros. If you want to talk about analog, talk about movie cameras that you first have to wind up mm-hmm. before yep. they work. I don't know, we're not even talking batteries here. You have to wind them up. What's that mean? You have to wind them up before they'll even before they'll even work. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. It should be noted, you know, for our listeners who who maybe don't have the sense of timeline on this. It's not just that he was making a documentary with no experience making documentaries. The medium of documentary is still very young at this point. I mean, uh, for people who have listened to the show since the beginning, you'll remember in season one uh, we talked about Robert Flaherty's Nook of the North. And at that point, the idea of a documentary is still very nebulous. The other two documentaries we've done this season, Primary and Harlan County USA, all come much later. In this case, I mean, when you're looking at the river, it's you can draw some parallels to Nook. The only other documentarian that I can think of of like renown then is is over on the other side of the world, what, what Ziga Vertov was doing with the the Kino Pravda films in the Soviet Union. You can certainly see elements of that in the river. If I can throw something out there that may be weird, because I've watched a bunch of those Kino Pravda films, and and, um, not to be dismissive, they are kind of dry. And the river is very much not dry. There is a poetry to it. There's a beauty to it. The music I find really great. I kind of feel like the river is the missing link between those Soviet Kino Pravda films and the Walt Disney True Life Adventure films of, like, the 50s. You know what I'm saying? Well, the, the real, I, that's an excellent observation because the, one of the historical ironies, I guess, is the river could have just as easily been one of those dry, uh, you know, the films they parody in uh, The Wonder Years, right? <laughs> This is a squirrel. Let's watch the squirrel climb a tree. The squirrel <laughs> is climbing a. It, it could have been like that because Lorenz actually wrote two scripts. One was your straightforward, uh, the Mississippi. It uh, starts in Minnesota and goes through Minneapolis and Dubuque, Iowa. There's a lot of water there. And the Ohio River and the tributary. Yeah, it could have been the real stale, dry, man killed documentary before it even got started. But he had also written in, from, from what I've studied, uh, a, a night of inspiration. He just banged out this epic, almost like a poem. And he had these two scripts. 
and you talk to a few people and that's okay. Hey, we, we sort of like this, this more poetic kind of script. But one of the things he did, uh, based on his connections as a, as a film critic, he, he took the more poetic lyrical script and sent it to McCall's magazine, which, which back in the day, uh, magazines were kind of like cable TV. You know, lots of households would have two, three, four different magazines come into their homes. That You, you had the specialized titles, but you also had uh, magazines that would appeal to everybody and, re- and would run the gamut of articles. What's in the news? What's going on in sports? What's going on in pop culture? And Lorenz convinced McCall's magazine, again, a popular magazine back in the day, hey, run this script for me. I want to see the reaction. And according to the folks at McCall's, at the time, the magazine received more requests from the general public for reprints of that article than up to anything at that time. It's almost the analogy I would make today was it got more likes on Facebook than anything else, (laughs) right? People literally had to make the effort, write a little note, stick it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, throw it in the mailbox. Hey, send me a copy of this. And Lorenz was convinced based in large measure of of that literal audience feedback. I'm going to go with this script, this more lyrical, poetic instead of the dry as dirt, which, which it could have been, it could have been. And it got, I mean, the script gets, gets nominated for a, uh, am I right? It gets nominated for a Pulitzer. Uh, yeah, for poetry. And poetry. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, for, for me, the biggest excitement, uh, James Joyce uh, yeah, went out of his way. Yes. I mean, you want to, you want to talk about poetic and something well-written for its time. You got James Joyce coming out of his way to say, Hey, pretty good stuff you got going here. I like this. You're not hey, going to get, uh, you're Carl not going to get Sandberg. that dry Russian stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the poet Carl Sandburg was, was big on it too. Yeah. It's, I mean, and it is one of those things to look at. I mean, you can actually find folks and we'll, we'll, again, we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, but they, you know, people have published obviously the script for it, and there is something so incredible about the way that it manages to sum up in a very lyrical way uh, American history. With that, you know, 1860, we rolled four million bales down the river, rolled them off Alabama, rolled them off Mississippi, rolled them off Louisiana, rolled them down the river. We fought a war. We fought a war and kept the west bank of the river free of slavery forever. But we left the Old South impoverished and stricken. Doubly stricken because beyond the tragedy of war, already the frenzied cotton cultivation of a quarter of a century taken toll of the land. Like he's, you're, you're getting walked through what is essentially a very complex history in a way that just kind of carries you through it and gives you just the information you need to understand the current plight. And, you know, when you talked about, uh, Dr. Snyder, you know, the federal government and understanding how the federal government works or doesn't, you know, one of the greatest struggles we've had, uh, not to get into the, you know, the nuances of today's politics, but one of the greatest struggles we've had as a country the last, you know, 50 plus years is trying to explain to the public how these services work and and how these various you know and how we got to where we are and you either get people who oversimplify it to to a huge degree or you get 
situations like i mean you know uh currently on netflix there's a show uh adam conover the comedian wonderful guy but but he did a show trying to break down what different branches of the government and government services do and even with uh, you know half hours of episodes to break these down you still feel like all of this is so complicated but there's something about the writing on this film and obviously paired with the images that really does just get to the heart of you know what the TVA was doing and just the the plight of the American people at that time that I thought was very you know it it I mean obviously the the obvious comparison is Steinbeck who uh, I think Lawrence later worked with on on Fight for Life but it is that same kind of thing where when you read Steinbeck or you know we did the Grapes of Wrath uh film last season and it really does just find a way to get to the heart or or Woody Guthrie songs where you just kind of it just puts you where you need to be and you feel what you need to feel. For the reference to Steinbeck's appropriate, I do believe John Steinbeck has cited over the years that Lorenz's documentary inspired him to write The Grapes of Wrath. Wow. But w- one of Lorenz's challenges uh, with your observation was, okay, we need to do a little time tra- travel, but mid- mid-30s, America's in the middle of a Great Depression. Uh, the farm economy's collapsing. The Midwest is is literally, in, in many ways, the Midwest section of the country is becoming literally a dust bowl because of drought, a combination of drought, farming practices, et cetera. Um, and part of Lorenz's challenge with the river was, okay, here's where we are today. We, we have all these problems here uh, based on things like abuse of the environment. Oh, there's a current issue, right? Um, but we have all these issues going on. Um, how did we get here? And, and and that's what he that's what he tries to do with his ex- explanation. So there's the section of the film where it starts with uh, Lee's surrender at the Civil War, and then hey, we we need to rebuild our country after the Civil War. We need to rebuild the South, and we need to rebuild rebuild America. And so we're going to do things like hey, we're going to grow cotton, and we're and our car, our cotton is going to help clothe the world. And as we rebuild the country, we're going to do things like cut down all this timber in the upper Midwest. Um, and there's this line I just love in the river. We we rebuild the country, and the the announcers all this hyped up, go America, go USA. We real we rebuild a, an entire country, and then he immediately tags on into the script at what a cost. Yes. Yep. Yeah. America's flourishing. Yeah. What was the cost? What was the cost? We've, hey, man, we've got a natural disaster going on here. How did we get here? Yeah, we, re, we rebuilt a country. And in rebuilding that country, man, it cost a lot in terms of a ecological, environmental disaster. How did we get here? And, and then it film concludes and and here's some of the stuff the government's trying to do and and that's where it begins to look at like the tennessee valley authority and constructing dams along there and and hydroelectric power yeah it's 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 in many and this is all like 37 minutes yeah so right right this isn't like a 37 netflix series (laughs) uh 37 part series no it's like 37 minutes Thank God it wasn't a 37-part Netflix series. Holy <laughs> crap. You just uh, sent a shiver up my spine, man. <laughs> I did not I did not need that thought in my head before I went to bed. Jesus Christ. You're welcome. Oh, well. All right, well. I guess I brought it upon myself with my 
absolutely filthy fucking mouth. <laughs> that is like really it's it's impressive the like the writing of it, and I guess it is because he goes more for a poetic as uh, style instead of going for strictly literal. Because if you get strictly literal, you have to kind of get into the weeds of the details. And with the poetic, you can kind of just get like the the feeling and the sense. You can have details and all that to to paint the picture and everything, but you don't have to get so didactic and literal. And you can just, you know, people at the time were going through it. So you don't need to kind of completely hold the hand. You just kind of need to say, hey, you know, here's what's kind of we're all feeling the same thing kind of right now. It's, um, you know, he brought up Woody Guthrie. It's almost like 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 Springsteen, you know, like not everybody's from a factory town in Jersey, but everyone's worked a shitty job or a lot of people have either been in a bad marriage or someone in their family's been, you know, you get these little details, you know, it's, I forget who said it, but I say it all the time. It's like the, the, the more specific you get, the more broader the, 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 the picture you paint. And with this, he's just kind of just honing in on this idea. And I think it works in part because not to disparage the filmmaking, it's got great imagery, but because he can't get like GoPro cameras riding around the river or anything, all this stuff, he has to paint, you know, it's an audio and visual medium. So he's painting with the audio too, which just kind of makes it this kind of perfect blend where you watch it and you immediately go, you put it in your head when it was made, you go, oh yeah, no, no, no shit. What? This is important. This is clearly like, getting us from one point to the next in the chronology of documentary filmmaking, which like Mike said, we've been covering a lot of early documentaries. It seems like the registry is really trying to get people to understand like how we got to this point in documentary filmmaking, which at the time was more um, Errol Morris influence. So it's like, here's how we got from here to here to now the kind of movies you're seeing. If you guys are even seeing documentaries at the time. I just spoke a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> one, one of the things, uh, when I do my course in documentary, one of the things I try to help students understand, too, is, uh, yeah, we can, we can look at all the, the cool shots and stuff we did. But I think Lorenz's other significant contribution is a soundtrack. Yes. Yep. Uh, how, yeah, we talk film. Well, let's talk about that gorgeous shot. Yeah, you betcha. Shots matter. But, but it's, it's sight and sound and and i have done this in in classrooms across the country where after we uh, screen the river I'll, I'll, there's a sequence not quite halfway and it's called the flood sequence the lead-in is that line at what a cost and he has these shots somewhere uh, of these uh, hills and plains with, with you see miles upon miles upon miles of tree stumps right? To rebuild the country, we ripped part of it apart. We abused part of it, these natural resources. And now we've got this stripped down land and we've created new problems. And then it transitions into a close-up, that's a shot, a close-up of a drop of water, a close-up of a drop of water. And then the soundtrack, you hear a kettle drum just a singular beat. Boom, 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 boom. And what you see is drops of water. Drip, 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 drip. But it's 
there's there's no narration. It's just a kettle drum. Boom, 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 boom. That that first flood starts with that first drop of water. But at the end of that sequence, that starts with a drop of water. It eventually goes from some drops of water to water trickling down hillside. So lots of drops of water lead to what? Trickles. Lots of trickles of water lead to what? Runoff. Where's all that runoff go? Into the tributaries. Where do all those tributaries go? Into the Mississippi. And that sequence, which starts with a single drop of water and one instrument, a kettle drum. By the end of that sequence, you have the narrator, oh my God, flood warning in New Orleans. This urgency in the narrator's voice. You have full orchestration. You have flood warning sirens blowing off. You have all these images of this massive flooding. I, I call it a cacophony of chaos. You know, it starts from this drop of water and a kettle drum. Boom, boom, drip, 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 drip. And all those drips eventually lead to mass destruction. I, I, I just personally think it's one of the most genius sequences based upon the relationship between what we're seeing and what we're hearing in film history, period. Yeah, you're it starts I mean, with that first drop of water. I mean, absolutely. You know, it's uh, something uh, I'm kind of conversely me and Mike talk about all the time with uh, a lot of modern movies these days is that they now kind of forget about the visual side of things and things get so bland that you go, well, we're, we're watching this. Our eyes are taking part of this. You can use the camera to heighten the emotions. And like you said, uh, it kind of felt like at the time they were so focused on the visuals and and improving upon visuals in the early days of cinema that some it took someone to go we can use the music not just as background noise at the theater some guy banging on an organ you could have the music enhance the emotions of the scene i mean i think maybe the best example of what a score can do to a movie is something i you know one of my favorite movies of all time what is halloween without john carpenter's score you know it's just people walking around and then a guy pops out. That's not, you know, another one of the many reasons why this movie's very important is just something like that you might not even think about until you place it in context and go, oh, wow, it took this guy who didn't even make movies kind of tripped over his own feet into this job and then just kind of changed the DNA of filmmakers going forward where they can go, Oh wait a minute! We can, we could start banging on the, we could start screeching on some violins when Janet Lee starts getting stabbed in the shower. We can start, you know, heightening everything. Use all of the tools available to us instead of just saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, this thing, great, whatever." But the images, no, everything is important, and that's that's a very good point. I love that. Well, there's there's actually there's three aspects to the score in the river. There's there's what we would call the original score, and so when the film opens, you hear this triumphant da da dun 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 da dun dun. It's like the river theme, which which repeats at least three times in the film. And so there's there's an original score aspect, but then working with his composer Virgil Thompson, there's a number of what we might call uh, southern folk tunes that reinforces 
what we're seeing on the screen. And so the sequence in the screen where um, the cotton is getting rolled onto the steamer ships and all these, uh, mm -hmm. we see the sequence of uh, lumber being felled and sent down the river to rebuild the country. Um, in that sequence, we, in we hear uh, a, a song of triumph called, mm -hmm. um, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. And then later in the film, after after the after the, the flood sequence, we, we see the the land uh, laid to waste, and and the tune that plays there is another another folk tune. Um, Go tell Aunt Rhody the old gray, sometimes it's called the old gray goose or the old gray mare horse. The old Go tell Aunt Rhody the old gray goose is dead. Hey, look at this land. This land is dead, and and, and that's what the music is telling us. It's dead. And then as describing that uh, middle sequence, the, the flood sequence, and that's like music sound effect. And, and so you have the original score aspect, you have, you have the relevant Southern folk tunes related to what, what are we seeing right now? And, and, and music is sound effect too. And, and it's so interesting, you know, you, when you brought up the, the, you know, the hot time in the old town sequence with the logs rolling down, that, you know, when we do this show, Part of what I enjoy about it is, you know, going through these registry classes and the films may seem disparate and disconnected, but you start to see these connections. And, you know, I'm watching these raw logs roll down uh, these ramps set to this, you know, Southern folk tune, as you noted. And, um, you know, fairly recently, a couple episodes back, we did Harlan County, USA, the Barbara Koppel documentary. And how does that begin obviously it's a much more somber song but we're watching men slide down into these mines with this folk music playing on the soundtrack and what i think is so compelling is whether or not koppel when she was doing this uh specifically set out to go let's do what they did in the river you look at those shots and you listen to that music and the way it comes together and whether or not it was intentional, you do look and go, well, we don't get that without this. Like, this is, you you start to see these through lines, you know, uh, from this film. And uh, that's why it is so great that it did get recognized when it did so early in the registry's lifetime is that there was this sense of, especially when the registry starts, it's about preserving important films. You know, I mean, it originally starts to, to keep movies from being colorized by Ted Turner. But, you know... Um, there is this idea of the fact that they pick the river so early is to say, like, well, no, if if tomorrow the Universal Vault catches fire and the Warner Brothers lot implodes and all of that, we have to preserve this because it is such a a great Rosetta Stone for not just what film becomes, but also I think, you know, an interesting thing that I'm sure we can touch on is is what film didn't become. Because obviously there was a, a great ambition for more of these films, more of these government films to be made and to become populist entertainment in a way. I mean, it's it's worth noting. Tom, did you happen to come across in your research what film we've covered on this podcast that this uh, documentary played before? No, I did not, actually. Apparently played before Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Really? Which we covered in season one. So One of Lorenz's big frustrations and challenging was uh, distribution for, for both films. The Plow That Broke the Plains, his first document, and, and, and The River. The, the thing with Hollywood is, uh, you know, many of the production companies uh, either own their own movie theaters 
and so they had outlets. Uh, but there was also an a inherent fear on the part of Hollywood. Seriously, do we really want to compete against the federal government? And, and so Lorenz had a, a very difficult time uh, getting distribution of both films. In fact, Lorenz, much of his work, uh, besides making the films, was convincing theaters, hey, could you, could you screen this for us? Uh, we, we might not even charge you, just run it. And so besides not having a film production background, one of his, one of his huge problems was he, he's literally not a part of that production, uh, that, that production factory. You know, we make them, we distribute them. Well, well, he makes them. Now I gotta just what? Get it in a movie theater? What? No. And he faced significant challenges just getting his films onto a screen. Now I have to imagine because I was watching um, after uh, *Plow the Brooklyn's and *The River*. He's working with some other filmmakers uh, in the the government's film division that name escapes now, but *Power in the Land* is one of them. That was by Flaherty, believe it or not, who did yeah. Manuk. Well, Flaherty did The Land, right? Yeah, there were okay. two of them. There's... Oh, Power in the Land was about rural electrification. Yeah. Yeah, I get those two mixed up. Oh, little side thing on The Land by Flaherty. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Th- yeah, it was. That film was never released. Really? Flaherty's The Land was never released. Part of it was the timing's bad. So, why are we going to be careful with our agricultural practices? When we're entering World War II, and we need to crank out as much food as we can. Mm. And so I'm pretty sure Flaherty's The Land has never seen the light of day. Well, it's, uh, maybe it wasn't probably. It's on YouTube, if anybody wants to look it up. Yeah, it for is. the longest time, that film was, was zero distribution. We, we can encourage people to be, uh, have good farming practices when we're, we got... We're at war. We need, we need to make as much food as we can. And, and a lot of the land by Flaherty was about like land conservation and, and smart farming practices. Which uh, maybe kind of goes to a little bit of the difficulty Parry Lorenz was having getting this movie out is that as much as Hollywood likes to, to, to preach a liberal uh, agenda, they're pretty conservative at heart. So seeing a movie about this, that's uh, like the registry says, pretty... Uh, propagandistic about its liberal agenda of hey let's not destroy the goddamn earth uh they 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 might be a little going i don't know if we want to put that out there that's the fascinating thing i was up at the roosevelt museum obviously you know looking for the rent center and they had an amazing plaque in the roosevelt museum now obviously today fdr is revered as as one of our greatest presidents and i saw a plaque up that talked about uh his opposition and I, I texted it to Tom, uh, which is, it says, you know, well, he had uh, critics on the right who said he was a secret communist, and he had critics on the left who said he was a centrist whose policies didn't go far enough. And I just looked at that and went, oh, so we don't change. We literally, we just, we always do this. This is how it is. And looking at that and realizing, like, it is so crazy. I mean, of course, it makes sense when you think about it, but you don't appreciate i think uh, at least people my age and, and people this generation maybe don't appreciate how much of the policies that fdr was putting forward that we now just see as like not just we take for granted but go well obviously that's what you had to do i mean we we're in the depression we were going into war of course he had to do all these things don't realize how much of that was faced with 
such not just virulent opposition, but but fear mongering. And I think that that's part of what Lorenz's films do so well, too, is is to try and communicate really the great struggle that most of our presidents have faced in this country, which is to sometimes you see certain, uh, you know, when you read certain presidential memoirs, like the president wants to wants to get on the podium and go, do you people not understand? I'm trying to help. This is going to be. Why are you mad at this? This is going to be good. And with what Lorenz was doing and why he's called FDR's filmmaker is those films do very effectively convey, you know, the importance of these issues. And obviously he makes a third film, uh, Fight for Life, which is dealing with um, uh, 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 maternal uh, mortality. Yeah, uh, it's it's a docudrama kind of thing. It's teetering a yeah. little bit, you know. Filmed on location, but he also employed actors. Yeah. So, so, so one of the arguably one of the first docudramas, and it's. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm. I, I hate to get dark this quick in the podcast. I'm a little bit biased because it's, um, uh, it's describing you know eclampsia in the you know in the in the late. There's that's that is the same thing that that um killed my great grandmother when she was having my grandfather. So I'm very sensitive to that anyway. So I'll admit when I'm watching it, you know, I was stirred by that. But it is just amazing how these three films platform claims river and fight for life all are are lorenz in a way without ever being didactic just kind of screaming into the camera at the audience of like this is take this seriously this is a problem and this is what we have to do about it and i think that that's you know when tom talks about people not wanting to release it it's not you know i mean obviously rko dist- ended up distributing the films like Power and Land ended up distributing uh, Five for Life. I am I'm guessing RKO had to be the one distributing The River too. If it appeared before Snow White, which was an RKO release, because Disney's Buena Vista didn't exist at that point. So I'm guessing RKO handled the distribution on The River too. I, I didn't I see think, it. I think it was uh, L- Lorenz. I'd have to recheck the book. But I'm pretty sure Lorenz had a significant hand yeah. in convincing theaters to carry to carry the river. Well, you know what? Yeah. Good good news with with all these movies screaming into the void about things needing to change. At least we can say we learned our lesson. We're living in a utopia, and we have three yeah. seashells in our bathrooms instead of toilet paper now, so it's fine. <laughs> um, so I live I live less than 15 miles from the Mississippi. And and I'm pretty sure every spring I can head over there and the suckers flooding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, as we're recording this, uh, Yellowstone is flooded. Yeah. I don't know if anybody saw that. Oh my god! I was... Did anyone call Costner? Is he okay? That's the thing. That's the thing. I didn't know about that, and I was googling Yellowstone as in the Kevin Costner TV show, and saw all these news alerts and went, "Oh my god! Like, this is a this is a nightmare." Uh, so you know, we've still got stuff to figure out. Well, I, I, I know in my dad's book, he, he, he suggests that suggesting the river, et cetera, our, our propaganda isn't, isn't fair. But I, would, but I would point out that, all right, so in 1938, based on the success of the river, Congress created and established the film services. The federal government has its own film production company. And, and that's where they went on to make the baby movie, Fight for Life. However, 1940, this two years later, next budget cycle, <clears throat> film services cut, 
Is, is this something we really should be spending our money on? Because, you know, well, what's going on over in Nazi Germany? Hey, man, you got Lenny Riefenstahl making these films, Triumph of the Will, and, and, and look at how their government's using film. There were questions. I would say they're legitimate. Now, I'm not coming down on either side, but I think it's a legitimate question. Should, should our government be making movies that represent a point of view? You know, like like the progressive point, how, how are we going to fix flooding? Well, the government's going to fix it. The government's going to pay for dams. Yeah, but there are plenty of folks, you know, living, living in purple Wisconsin, there are plenty of folks with, with opposite point of view. You know, that's that's not the government's business, or maybe we should be spending money somewhere else. And, and so I don't know that I would call it propaganda, but but to say that Lorenz is FDR's filmmaker, oh, yeah. Is he the Republican Party's filmmaker? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. That, now, that doesn't necessarily diminish um, the artistic accomplishment he did. But but clearly, when you start talking about the Tennessee Valley Authority, okay, that's a federal funded project. Is that something, environmental control, is that something the federal government should be doing? Some people are going to say yes. Some people are going to say no. And it's interesting you mentioned that because in in the in the Roosevelt Museum at his library, they are pretty candid about. You know, I mean, they're pretty. I I found it pretty impressive. They're pretty candid about. There are programs within the New Deal that absolutely worked. There are programs within the New Deal that were absolutely mistakes, like the NRA, not the National Rifle Association. To clarify, um, the New Deal NRA, and they also address the fact that. Part of Roosevelt's New Deal was funding artists, not just the film division, but just, you know, making sure artists funded funding artistic works and the questions raised of not just not just on a political thing, but but can art truly be, you know, pure? Can art be you know, real art if it is government funded? Because, of course, you know, the government has a hand in that. I mean, I'm a I've been doing a lot of watching of. um uh, my my partner who has been on the show uh, is from from Russia, uh, and she grew up in Russia in the '90s. So, fall of the Soviet Union, but she grew up with all of these must film comedies and must film films. And so, I've been watching a lot of those, and it is this interesting balance that they have to strike because, well, how do you make a satirical film when the government's uh, mad at you and and the the, the kind of needle they have to thread in a lot of these yeah, films. Authoritarian, authoritarian. Yeah. And the needle they have to thread is kind of the only things you can make fun of about the government are what the last government did. So, you know, you can't, you know, obviously you can't be critical of, uh, you know, I don't know if, 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 uh, if Brezhnev's in power, you can't be critical of Brezhnev, but you can talk about, uh, you know, you can uh, take jabs at things that happened during Stalin or that happened during um, uh, uh, not Beria. I'm not going to try and remember all their names. I cannot remember all of the Soviet premieres off the top of my head. But, you know, you're, you're absolutely correct, Dr. Snyder, in, in acknowledging, you know, the, the collapse of the government's film division. You do kind of wonder, like, what would that have what would that have looked like had it continued? What does that look like under Eisenhower? What does that look like? under uh you know what's that look like under nixon what does that look like under recurring character on this podcast ronald reagan comes up a lot uh but you know you do wonder like well what is what is that 
look like. And and that's not to suggest, I mean, obviously, you know, we did primary, the you know, the, the Robert Drew film primary this season. Kennedy was uh, very, you know, he opened himself up to Drew and let himself be recorded. But even then, you know, it's not like he had control over the finished product. In fact, so much so that the anecdote we loved on that episode that he let Drew just film him talking about the strategies dealing with missile sites until one of his generals went, get the cameras out of here. What are you doing? But so you're absolutely right in that. I think it's, there is something so, com- and, you know, compelling about watching this and it, it just how effective it is and, and really an appreciation. You know, you did, you're right to evoke Lenny Riefenstahl and, and Nazi Germany. And of course, you know, that's, those were uh, in their country uh, effective films as well in motivating their audiences. But there is something, uh, there is something incredible about the just the sheer urgency that you feel in this in this film that I think is so incredible. You know, it's it's funny because that this is actually something I was thinking about, like you know, reading this the essay and and just talking about all this is that the way things. The, as much as things change, things don't. You know, we make jokes about we're not listening about the um the environmental issues this this movie brings up, but it also just in terms of like filmmaking and everything, this got you know some critics said it's propaganda, blah blah blah, and all that, and it's just reminding. It's just like we're still kind of dealing with that today with documentaries that a lot of people can't get it in their head that documentaries are films and they're going to have points of views, and anytime a movie that comes out with a point of view. There's always people, even if they like politically agree with it, they go, oh, well, you know, this movie has a point of view. It's not it's not being honest. That's not a real documentary. No, guys, that's the second and someone makes an edit. It is a film. It is now it's it's more about the truth than the facts or, you know, something like that. It's it's just so funny how we now have documentaries all the time, constantly bombarding us in a way I, I feel like Parry Lorenz would have a goddamn stroke if he could see how many documentaries we people go through and that people voluntarily watch. I mean, how many people just sit on Netflix all weekend watching documentaries of all things? Sure, the documentaries about people getting mutilated and strewn across county lines, but still. But we, you still have people that just cannot get it through their heads. You know, like 80 years later, it's a movie. Someone made this. There's going to be a point of view. You you have to dig through that in terms of your reaction to the movie, sure, but that's kind of inherent, whether it's government-funded documentary like this or not. Even if Perry Lorenz just made this on his own, you feel like this would have been kind of just what he made because this was just his point of view. And, you know, as much as things change, like the good doc said, the Mississippi's still flooding. (laughs) You know? Well, and also, the, the I think the, the question Lorenz's film raised is, should the federal government be engaged in media production, right? Aren't, aren't they supposed to, like, govern us? Should they, in, and I think that was part of the question and part of the, the reason behind the propaganda charge. Is, is this something our government should even be doing? But then, you know, let, let's jump up to the, to the year 2022. Social media makes that argument irrelevant. Yeah, I on my book face feed, uh, I get stuff from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. I just kind of want to know a little bit what's going on with COVID. But it's but it's 
so fascinating just to read the comments. Hey, thanks for keeping us up to date. Uh, there's no way I'm going to take that shot because it's going to get embedded with a tracking device. And so here you have with, with social media, you know, our government is using these media platforms to reach out to us. Uh, where we're where back in Lorenz's day where we, put, we just basically had newspapers, magazines, radio, and newspapers. Today, the internet makes makes all that so irrelevant, but yet it, it, it doesn't matter, even, even if it's just a government agency. Hey, here's the latest COVID stats. You're, it's still going to get people to respond based on their own political point of view. Yep. Hey, thanks for the update. It just, yeah, uh, there's there's just no way I'm getting those shots. And it's just been, it's fascinating to look at government and its use of media today in an, in the era of uh, social media and digital platforms versus, versus back in Lorenz's day. Just to see how that has evolved in some And it's so interesting you say that because um, Lorenz in his own, uh, in that in those recordings that we were talking about up top uh, on the, on the uh, FDR library site, he talks about one of the reasons he was so interested in film is he said, you know, if you look at what Thomas Paine was able to distribute in his leaflets and uh, in, in Common Sense and all that, and he talked about like the limited number of people that he was able to get those leaflets out to. And he said that, well, if Thomas Paine were around today, he'd be working in the newsreel. He'd be making newsreels. He'd be making films. And so that's a, a great point you make that essentially, not to be uh, reductive about it, but, you know, were Perry Lorenz around today, I'm sure he would feel that same urgency and, and be focused on social media as a way to reach people. So, you know, if our listeners take nothing else away from this, no, if Perry Lorenz were alive today, he'd be on TikTok. That's the important message to take away from this. Uh, I don't know how TikTok works, but I assume it's video size. I think my my head just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to picture. My dad always referred to Perry Lorenz as Mr. Lorenz whenever he was out in public or even just in the house. Uh, uh, Mr. L- Mr. Lorenz just called. And, and and I I just see that as a reflection for the amount of respect yeah. uh, my dad had for for you know the recognition of what Lorenz did accomplish. We we can talk. I think there's value in talking about all this propaganda and government role of uh, government role of uh, use of media platforms. I, that's that's all legit. But ultimately, let's let's go back. Let's go back and look look at the art the art he created and, and, and that, 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 that is still something that stands out. And just the, the, just the purity of it. I mean, just the purity of his stances and ideals alone, even if this movie didn't change cinema, which obviously it did, it helped affect things in many ways, just the purity of this guy doing, you know, seeing something, having something to say and just doing it, you know, that alone kind of earns the guy some credit and uh also just got to say your mind exploding at the idea of Parry Lorenz making tiktoks that's my revenge for you putting the 37 hour netflix series of this we both got it now i just got now i just got to torture i got to find a way to torture mike that's what i'm good at that's 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 true is so what we've created is the two scenarios If, if Perry were around today either he'd have a 37 episode netflix docuseries or he'd be out with an iPhone going, 
What up, fam? Today we're going to talk about the uh, ecological devastation that our country has uh, wreaked upon our Midwest. What, what up, you know, fam? We we're, we're, what up, fam? We're watching them roll through native land to put oil pipelines through, bro. <laughs> yeah, look at all the water. <laughs> Booyah. Oh, wait, Booyah is a cable TV thing. Yeah, I just messed that one up. Uh, Baba Booey, Baba Booey. <laughs> um, did anybody else have anything that they wanted to add before we wrap up talking about the, the Oscars that year and all that? Um, well, one little thing, too, with, uh, you know, there there have been some references to other types of uh, documentaries that are popular on Netflix, like the, the murder series and stuff. Well, one aspect of Lorenz's film work is, is the subgenre of uh, problem solution, right? Plow broke the plains, the river, and fight for life. They're all looking at a problem. We got a dust bowl here. Uh, Mississippi's flooding and, and, and trashing stuff. Uh, women are giving birth and they're dying. Uh, we have some problems here. And, and then it goes and looks at, but it's from the federal government perspective, it looks at the potential solution from the federal government. And so this is, this is you know, as alluded to before with uh, the popularity of the murder documentary series, you know, this is just one of those subgenres where, where Lorenz's body of work deals with, with uh, national problems, he, here's a solution that the federal government could be doing. Yeah, and we, we still get plenty of those today. I mean, obviously, I, I hate to be hacky to draw this parallel, but of course, you know, a decade plus ago, you know, the Oscar went to an inconvenient truth, which is, you know, another case. We still get these films constantly, um, Gasland, films like that, that not just on an environmental level, but just the ones that, that do kind of draw attention to issues. Another thing I did want to note, just as a weird coincidence, uh, is that the narrator of the river, Thomas Chalmers, and is in the registry technically three times? No, uh, four. He's in the registry four times total. He provides the narration for the river and the plow that broke the plains. He is an actor in the movie Outrage, which was just inducted last year. And he directed the movie The Sex Life of a Polyp, which is a Robert Benchley comedy short that I believe I may be the only living person to have seen. Uh, as is the case with, I think, most things Robert Benchley has done. Uh, I'm probably the only person watching The Reluctant Dragon on Disney+. Plus. Not, not a lot of Robert Benchley fans. Yeah, you're anyway. single-handedly keeping Disney+, Plus from <laughs> becoming a new Quibi. <laughs> Um, one final thing I wanted to say was just because we mentioned her name, I think it's absolutely amazing that this movie beat out Lenny Riefenstahl's entry at the Venice Film Festival. And I just wanted yeah, to say not- with a hearty, as hearty as I can, haha, fuck you, you Nazi bitch. Yeah, take that, Nazis. <laughs> so we should talk about, we always wrap up talking about the Oscars to give context of that year. So, Tom, this should be an easy one. Zero. But how do you? Th- yeah. How do you think Perry Lawrence? Uh, they probably didn't even have documentary stuff at this time, right? Well, there was not a documentary category, but documentary films could be nominated in. They had live action short categories then. Okay, live action but... short, one reel or two reel. So I looked this up and I went through them. Uh, it in theory could have been in the best live action short subject two reel category. Uh, for which the actual nominees, uh, the winner was the Declaration of Independence. The other nominees were Swing Time in the Movies and another nominee, They're Always Caught, which, yes, Tom, is from my favorite uh, short film series, Crime Does Not Pay. 
Uh, talked about it before, I think, on the show. Love those weird shorts. Uh, if anybody hasn't seen them, please look up The Public Pays. It's wild. Uh, just for context, the Best Picture nominees that year uh, were The Adventures of Robin Hood, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, The Citadel, Four Daughters, Grand Illusion, Jezebel, Pygmalion, Test Pilot, and You Can't Take It With You. And of those films, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood and Jezebel are both in the National Film Registry, and we'll be discussing those in future seasons. I do believe, uh, just flipping through my dad's book, that The River was submitted but it, for, for consideration, mm-hmm. but it did not receive a nomination. And Lorenz, I believe, inferred that Walt Disney himself opposed the river being nominated to something we talked about a little bit earlier. Do we really want to be in competition with the federal government? And, and, you know, yeah, you know, I mean, no, because really if anybody can, uh, if anybody can take issue with films being in production on behalf of the federal government, it's uh, the man whose entire studio was salvaged by making films during the war on behalf of the federal government. Oh, Walt, you scamp. Uh, Dr. Snyder, thank you so much for joining us. This is... This was fantastic. This was so cool. Um, I feel like we, we, you know, not just our listeners, but we got a real education here. We got to, to experience, a, you know, a class of yours. So um, please don't let the University of Wisconsin uh, bill us for tuition. I'm not sure how that works out. I think we probably owe them now. But well, you know, just don't don't I've, tell them where to find us. I feel like I'm back in college, cursing in front of a professor again. <laughs> yeah, no damn problem. <laughs> um, and the f bomb is one of my faves. Good, I'm glad, <laughs> very glad. Well, well, before we go, yeah, I was like 13 years old when George Carlin's Seven Words You Can't Say on TV routine came out. I actually got it. <laughs> I mean, how is it you can't say the mofo? But yet you can watch a soap opera and, and, and there's two people clearly trying to make a baby or something there. You, you, I got it. I'm, got I'm, it. I'm so glad you said that because one of the voices you've been doing as part of this, that, you know, the deep grumble, I'm like, oh, that's that that is very Carlin. So I'm glad that. OK. Childhood hero. <laughs> um, right yes. up there with, yeah, right up there with Hank Aaron and George Carlin. Yeah, you, you explain that someday. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. This was this was so cool. Um, you know, Kyle and I have been going back and forth. You know, because we were you and I were emailing quite a bit to try and get this to happen. I'm I'm so glad it did. Like I said, those those essays in the Library of Congress are are so important to us, and it's just so cool that you were here to, um, you know, impart even more information on the show uh, for us and for the listeners. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if I don't know how much uh, you you mentioned your you know your book face. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug, whether it's uh, you know writing or social media or anything you want to plug for the listeners on the way out? Well, the only the only little thing to throw out there is uh, I I'm a volunteer who raises funds for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. That's that's kind of a, a family thing for us, and so there you go, Crohn's Colitis Foundation. It's one of those one of those nonprofits. Um, I, I volunteer for uh, the other thing I just throw out there. I'm grateful. Uh, part of my work I see that that's just is it, it's that family connection. Um, 
just keeping my dad's uh, legacy out there. And, and it was important for my dad to make certain that uh, people knew who Per Lorenz was and what he accomplished. And so any opportunity I get uh, to, to spread the word on, on Per Lorenz, I'm, I'm there. And, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. I have one last question before we let you go, too. I'm, I'm curious, what either a contemporary documentarian or film do you think captures the legacy of Perry Lorenz, in your opinion? So in my basement, I've got a cupboard that has these things that are called DVDs. <laughs> hey, look behind me. There's just... Today, it's almost impossible. There's, there's just so much stuff out there. Um, there's a really cool one from a few years ago that actually aired on, believe it or not, VH1. Yeah, the music channel. And it was about uh, hate, the subgenre called hate rock. And, and, and to me, when I saw that, to me, it just, in, in today's multiverse, there's there's so much more opportunity to find uh, things. Man, I have been thinking about hate rock. That that's really a thing. There's so much more opportunity to come across stuff. I'm I'm not a fan of being ignorant. You know what whatever the topic is, I'm just not a fan of being ignorant because if if I can be informed on on whatever and give it some thought. I, I'd like to think I'm I'm just maybe maybe just a pinch more capable of making choices and informed decisions and there there's so much good material out there i mean if if there's a topic you're into there's an awesome documentary from several years ago that hbo did in the 80s on pro football injuries i mean this is this is before brett Favre. this is like 20 years before coach mike ditka went before congress and it was a, basically looked at how pro football for every superstar, you got like 20 guys who are crippled for life. And that just blew me away because I'm such you know, I'm a big Packers fan. And watching that, you're sitting there, you know, for as much as you love pro football, there's a lot of guys that are paying a pretty steep price just so you can like pro football. And that just killed me. You know, there's this illusion. Yeah, let's get together. We're going to watch the Packers on Sunday. And they're going to play the Bears. And we hate the Bears. Yeah. Yeah, but man, those those guys that play, they pay, we don't see them Monday through Saturday. Yeah, you know, and and that that I think documentary, whatever the topic is, when it's done well, like I said before, it's gonna make your head explode. Man, this is something I never even considered before. What do you what do you mean pro football? You just guys are like cripple for life. What? No, it's like I'm, I'm watching Packers. And a good documentary, it's just, it's going to make you see things in a new way that you, that you never even thought about. And I think that's, whatever the topic is, um, that's the real power of documentary, just to make you see something or can give it consideration in a way that you never did before. Well, Dr. Snyder, thank you so much for, for joining us doing this. You're obviously, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you didn't have enough of us, you're obviously welcome back on the program uh, anytime. Uh, and obviously folks can find all the links we talked about in the show notes. Everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. 
These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. All right, gentlemen, and Dr. Snyder, (laughs) time for our picks for the registry. A reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. Well, this film came out, I believe, in 1968, so it meets that criteria, and it's an American film. It's the movie called Head, and the stars are the Monkees, the 60s pop band. It also has, like, Ray Nitschke, the great linebacker for the Green Bay Packers, boxer Sonny Liston. Um, If you want to talk about a film that's, like, a product of its time, Head, boom. And it's got the monkeys. What else could you want? Well, if you'll excuse me, I need to go scratch out what was my registry pick for our upcoming Meshes of the Afternoon episode. <laughs> I got to figure out a new one for that. now. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Yes, I'm in full agreement there. Uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, that's in that, that America Lost and Found Criterion box set. Love that film. Uh, for me, uh, I was thinking about, obviously, The River and 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 uh, the other films that that are influenced by it, and and so on and so forth. And one of the things that struck me uh, about the river is there's that line where it says, "We fought a war, we fought a war, and kept the west bank of the river free of slavery forever, uh, but we left the old South impoverished and stricken." Now, anybody that's kept up with uh, the history of America since then has, of course, discovered not quite forever. We just kind of found loopholes, and the way we talk about the American farmer. Uh, is still, I think, viewed in a New Deal mindset, even though we're we're very far from that. So I was thinking about something that I think belongs in the registry, something that is, uh, you know, very much indebted to the river and also uh, kind of carries that further. Now, it is an American film, came up more than 10 years ago. There are some people who could give me flack for this pick because it's not a theatrical film. But just last year, the registry inducted Freedom Riders, which was a PBS documentary which means if it's a documentary that aired on television, we're gonna, they're going to let it slide. So I think if that's the case and we're putting that in there, I think um, the obvious answer uh, is Harvest of Shame, the, uh, the uh, Fred Friendly, Edward R. Murrow uh, documentary film. Uh, it's about 55 minutes long. I saw it for the first time when I was young. I was in like middle school reading a book on Edward R. Murrow because I was cool. Um, and I watched it on like a DVD. I, I revisited it recently. And, you know, uh, talking about that quote, we fought a war, we fought a war and kept the West Bank uh, free of slavery forever. There's a quote right at the beginning of A Harvest of Shame uh, talking about the migrant farm workers that, you know, that are being exploited. And a man just kind of boldly says, you know, we used to own slaves. Now we just rent them. And that just tells you everything. I mean, you know, obviously today, Edward R. Murrow, I think by most people is remembered. Uh, for his kind of see it now confrontation with Joseph McCarthy, um, you know, especially because of Good Night and Good Luck and things like that. But, but you talk to anybody, uh, you know, of of my father's generation, uh, you know, when you say Edward Murrow, they think Harvest of Shame. This just, I mean, truly 
uh, shocking expose on the treatment of migrant farm workers. And shocking, I think, in its time, because you just can't imagine it. And the treatment of, you know, they're talking to poor families and, and people of color uh, who, who are, you know, being struggling and, and being exploited. And, you know, there's this young um, uh, uh, young boy, a uh, black boy, who, who's talking about the, the life, the circumstances he's living under. And he's showing a mattress with holes in it. And you hear the, the man behind the camera go, well, how did those holes get there? And the kid just, like, matter-of-factly goes, rats ate it. And, it. and it goes on like that for 15 minutes. I think what makes it shocking today is in the same way that like when you see films from the 70s talk about climate change and if you're a person of my generation you just you want to just scream like oh they knew we've known for so much longer than we make it seem like we all act like we found this out in the 2000s when you watch Harvest of Shame you just keep thinking like we knew we we've known that it was like this for so goddamn long and yet we keep acting like we just found out yesterday um in terms of just documentary filmmaking in terms of broadcast journalism um harvest of shame is one of the greatest works in that field and especially if now the registry is is getting more open about where these films were first presented uh, harvest of shame should absolutely be in the national film registry harvest is one i screen in my documentary class too it's extraordinary well I'm going to have to bring things a little lowbrow here. The, I know the, when that well comes in. The 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 foul-mouthed one is about to bring the uh the overall IQ of this conversation down just a little bit. <laughs> I figured Mike would have something that covered the sort of documentary all of the all of the political kind of stuff that's going on in this movie. The thing that really struck me the most about this movie is something that always strikes me about um, older movies, documentaries or whatever, or movies filmed on location, which is what my movie it does, is that I love seeing what America used to look like uh, unvarnished, you know, just on location, see, see it what it is, you know. Um, we talked about it in... Um, I'm having a brain fart right now. The um the the silent film we did with uh David Sims. The crowd. Yeah, well like watching you know 1920s New York City on location, seeing what it actually looked like, you know, you're not getting re- recreations on a set or whatever. I find that stuff just fascinating. Um <laughs> So I wanted to bring up a um a movie that I think one should be in the registry just because I think the filmmaker is one of the more interesting filmmakers in America. Not as discussed these days because he's off doing more abstract kind of work, um, but has made quite the impact on the genre world. Um, and this movie is one uh, me and Mike definitely talked about last year when a certain movie that got nominated at the Oscars caused quite the stir. Uh, I wanted to pick because I loved I love seeing old New York, dirty, grimy, shitty New York, not this fantasy land that Todd Phillips does where he makes it look like like a fantasy, like, oh, it's so cool, isn't it? Uh, my pick is going to be Abel Ferrara's Miss 45. I love the the filmmaking on hand. It almost feels like a documentary. He is just stealing footage. He's not getting permits. He's just doing that. So you get this unvarnished, poverty-ridden, prostitute-addled, drug hell space that New York used to be. And it's an important movie. 
we're still getting rape revenge movies. One got nominated for an Oscar last year, even though it wasn't a rape revenge movie, and Two also years it ago. was a piece of shit. Two years Two ago. Years What's ago. time? What's time? Yeah. What's time? But I think, generally, genuinely, uh, Miss 45 is one of the most important American movies of the last 50 years. Uh, and just seeing America at the time that this documentary was showing us kind of just brought, started me thinking about other movies. Um, you know, fiction works, obviously, but ones that were shot on location that give us a sense of what this country used to be before, um, in New York's case, before it got gentrified, you know. So not so much uh, ecologically destroyed, more um, economically destroyed. But yeah, Miss 45, my pick. Thank you again to Dr. Robert J. Snyder for joining us. Next week, we step back from the reality of documentaries and into the surrealist world of avant-garde short films. Dr. Sabina Stent joins us for 1943's Meshes of the Afternoon. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.